Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Psalm 8. Um, as you turn there, this is one of the Psalm of, Psalms of David, making up part of the first book. And as we read, you'll probably see that this psalm covers a lot of topics. In fact, if you were to go and look at how it's used in the New Testament later on, there are many different ways that we could exposit this psalm, many different ways that we could talk about this psalm. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about all of them, so we'll just focus on one. But I do want your ears to be attuned to the things that this psalm opens up and just how foundational it carries across all of Scripture. So Psalm 8, we'll read the whole psalm. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's go to our God in prayer. O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And Lord, who am I, Father, that I would come and bring your word to your people and Yet we might ask, ask ourselves, who are we that you would call us into your house to worship you? Father, you who are worthy of all praise and adoration, we ask that you would send your spirit, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds that we might hear the things that you have from us out of your word this evening. Would you sanctify my lips, Father? Give me words of life and truth to speak. We ask all this in Christ's mighty and precious name. Amen. Well, it was just over 1,600 years ago, 1,610 roughly, I guess, that a group of Germanic tribes known as the Goths, led by their great king and captain in Alaric, were pounding at the doors of Rome. And this collection of barbarians somehow, some way, managed to break through the gates of Rome and storm, sack, lay pillage to this great majestic city that has stood for hundreds and hundreds of years. By that time, twice the amount of America had stood by now. In fact, in the only really thing we can compare it to would almost be a, a 9-11 in the history of Rome, something that was so shocking to the American people, didn't affect everybody, really was only a, a local incident, but it shook the ground of what Rome was. It set the trajectory for the next hundred or so years of Rome's decline. And there, as the, the pagans especially sat back and wondered, how did this happen? How did this great city, standing for hundreds of years, literally the, the leader of the known world, all of the known world basically, how did it fall to a bunch of barbarians? And it caused most pagans to turn and point their fingers at the Christians and say, it was your fault. You're the reason this has happened. We don't sacrifice to our gods anymore. We don't do the plays anymore. We don't have the feasts anymore. The gods have got to be angry. Right? 
And there was one man, one sole individual who took it upon himself to defend the Christian faith. His name, you know, all know it probably well, St. Augustine. He wrote his great work, The City of God, over the span of 15 years, really trying to account for all the Roman arguments for the people of God, showing, no, it wasn't the fact that Christ was worshipped instead of Jupiter, or that we now uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper rather than feasts to the gods. It wasn't that reason. In fact, you could almost turn it the other way. It was the, the, the idolatry of Rome which led this judgment upon Rome. And yet there was also a second purpose, not just defending the Christians from this attack, but also encouraging the Christians. All these Christians who had found their identity as Romans suddenly were just as shaken as all the pagans. And Augustine's hope was to give them a view of history that would let them account for all the ups and downs in life. All the times that all the Romes that would come and go, all the major empires that would crash and burn, all the, the, the sorrow, all the pain, all the joys, giving a Christian view of those things, leading to God superintending his church, his city. And if there was one thing Augustine knew, it was the Psalms. If there was one thing he had deep in his bones, it was the Psalms. And tonight we come to a Psalm which, while he's never mentioned it explicitly, it surely undergirded, or one of, one of the Psalms that undergirded his entire project. This Psalm is one tonight that we're going to look at to, that shows to the unbelieving eye, God's reign, God's city, as it were, is one of utter foolishness, one of weakness and foolishness. And yet, it's a foolishness, as we'll see in this psalm tonight, which spreads his glory across the earth. It's a foolishness which spreads his glory across the earth and will one day accomplish all the purposes for which he has ordained it. And tonight, we're going to be looking at two parts of God's sovereign rule. First, we're going to be looking at the foolishness in God's sovereign rule itself. And then we're going to be looking at the foolishness of God's stewardship that he's given to man. So the foolishness of the steward rule of man. So we're looking at the sovereign rule of God, the steward rule of man, and the foolishness that makes it all up. So first, God's sovereign reign. And the psalmist, David, is clear that if there's one thing he's after in this psalm, there's one thing he wants the people of God to learn, it's that God is sovereign over it all. God's glory is over it all. Just look there in verse 1 and in verse 9, it's, he repeats the same line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he bookends this psalm, trying to draw attention to the fact that this is the reason we're singing, right? This is the reason we're saying anything at all, because God's majestic name is over all the earth, right? He sort of begins with this commentary on the creation story, Genesis 1 through 2, and we'll see other echoes of that later on, but 
the song, David is going all the way back to creation, Genesis 1. If you think about that first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the one thing that's assumed in that passage is that God is over everything, right? The, the Jewish authors, Moses didn't have to start with God was sovereign over everything, then he created everything. Now, that was the natural assumption that made up the Jewish mindset. God was majestic, sovereign over it all. And then the, the, the creation story goes on to tell how God created everything by the word of his power. Right? He created everything by merely speaking it into existence. And here David looks at all creation and says, Surely then all this that surrounds me bears the imprint of our maker. Now, almost like a, a record, you know, those are coming back into popularity in my generation, and, if, and you all know how a record's made, right? You pump sound into a needle, and that needle will etch into the vinyl, and then you take that record and put it into another needle, and as the, the needle traces those waves, it recreates the sound that imprinted it, Right? So just as the Lord spoke into creation, so surely now creation bears those grooves, bears those marks of God's voice. And here we are seeing David proclaiming that if there's one thing creation does, it proclaims the glory of God. It proclaims all that God has done. And everything that comes after this Psalm now, everything that comes out after verse 1, stands in between verse 1 and 9, is based on this one point, God's glory. God's glory working, God's glory being shown. And so as we talk about God's glory, we should ask, what is God's glory? We talk about it a lot, we say that word a lot, and yet I would say that God's glory is God's simple visual expression of himself. It is the full blessedness of God shining down upon his creation. Right? We see it in kind of picture form and examples in the, the fiery pillar that guided the people of Israel out of Egypt. We see it at the, the crashes and the lightning and the thunder at the top of Mount Sinai. We see it in the glory cloud that de descends upon the temple and the tabernacle, upon its completion. And so we see that God's glory is his pure blessedness, his own self, as it were, coming and making itself known upon the earth. Right? And so there's this response of this God's glory is coming onto the earth, and then there's this response from creation that we are all called to give glory back to God. And yet the psalmist is also doing not just looking back. He's not just looking back to creation. In fact, I think there's another reason why he begins and ends this psalm with this line. It's because he's looking back to creation when that was true. But he's also looking forward. He's looking forward to a time when that will be more real, more true than it was even at creation, right? That time when God's glory will finally and fully be revealed here on earth. So we have this looking back, looking forward, this 
remembrance and this expectation of what will be. And as he thinks about God's glory being shown on the earth and working itself out on the earth, he turns and considers a way that God makes his glory known that is beyond imagination. Right? In fact, if we could come up with any way that God would make his glory known, we would not say what the psalmist then goes on to say. It's God's apparent foolishness that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So here is the psalmist, here is David, thinking about how God makes his glory known, and what does he point to? But babies, nursing infants, and saying their cries, their praises actually overcome the shouts and the clamor of the enemies, of the Avengers, not the Marvel Avengers, but other Avengers. We think about last week's sermon on Psalm 2, right? The nations raging against God. And here is David saying, you know what the cure, you know what the, the, the final defense against those nations raging are? The cries of cries and praises of nursing infants. It's, a, it's a, a, a foolishness, a weakness that we could never come up with ourselves. Right? In fact, it reminded me as I was reading this passage, it reminded me of this time I was talking with a guy. He was, he was married to a South African, and he had been on a number of different safaris, and he was telling me about the times that he had come up he personally had, but he had seen a lion and a, you know, a, a hunter and a lion suddenly found themselves face to face, right? And in that moment, the last thing you're supposed to do is run, right? That is the last thing you're supposed to do. He said what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to stand there, look the lion in the eye, and really just hope that the lion's not hungry, right? And if you told me I'm not supposed to, from, run, supposed to run from a lion, I think that is the stupidest thing you could tell me, right? That is foolishness. I mean, there's a lion. I am getting as fast and as far away from it as I possibly can. But it's this apparent weakness in the way God works, using the cries and praises of infants. Now, as David is contemplating this creation story, you can almost imagine him, right? He's king of Israel. He's gazing into the night sky. He's contemplating God's glory being revealed in the stars and the moon. And then he turns to contemplate God's power in weakness and strength, seen in the babies and infants. And he has a striking revelation. God has placed him in charge. God has placed man in charge of all this. Right? He's looking at the night sky and he's thinking about God's perfect power and weakness and then he remembers that he's in charge. Him, a weak man, is in charge. And not just, you know, over Israel, but he will go on to say that man is sovereign steward sovereign over all of creation. 
So not only is God's glory worked out in the foolishness of praises and praises and cries of infants, but his foolishness is now carried over to appointing man into his place. So here is the sovereign God, the one whose pure, holy fire devours everything in an instant, who calls light from darkness, something from nothing, and yet he places man at the pinnacle of it, all of creation. And man is, while we may think the smartest, he is by no means the strongest, right? I mean, there are things that plague us. We are really low on the food chain, right, if we're thinking about just sheer existence. And yet look at these descriptors that David comes up with as he contemplates his place in creation. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Have you ever thought that God remembers you? That God cares for you? And here David, when he says man, I thought this was a little fascinating tidbit. It's not just the, word, the simple word man. In fact, most commentators point to this word and say this word man here really encapsulates man in his pure weakness. Right, right, all of his frailty, all of his mortality is summed up in this word used there for man. We almost might think it's, he almost says it's a mere mortal, or if you're a, a sci-fi fan, an earthling, right? It's a, we are just pathetic little creatures who can barely take care of ourselves. I thought about Star Trek and I haven't seen a lot of episodes, but I know the Borg is a bad character in the Star Trek series. And the Borg, when they take over a, a species, they label it, you know, species 1608. And I think, I can't remember what man's species label is. But it's kind of like that, right? We are just one out of a number of species. And in fact, if we think about all the species out there, we might be one of the weaker forms of species, and yet here is David proclaiming that God cares for us. God is mindful of us. He remembers us. He knows our frame. Years ago, a famous scientist wrote a book named Carl Sagan, wrote a book called The Pale Blue Dot. Right? Some of you all may have read that before, The Pale Blue Dot. And he was contemplating this picture that had been taken when, from space of the earth, and that from earth all the planet looks like is just one pale blue dot. Right? His point was that we are just one out of a million species. In fact, we're probably just one world out of a million worlds out there. So who, why do we think we're so special? And yet here's David telling us that God himself is mindful of us. God himself cares for us. But it's not just that. It's not just that God cares for us, but David goes on. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He has made us a little less than the angels. He has made us just below the arena of heavenly beings. 
And that word there, translated honor, after crowned him with glory and honor, that's actually the same word used there in verse 1 of God setting his glory above the heavens. So it's not the, we're not, I'm not saying we share the same glory of God, but we are reflectors of God's glory. Right? Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so now we share in that great task, that great gift of reflecting God's glory unto creation. So let me ask, have you ever truly considered yourself crowned with glory and honor, reflecting God's glory to creation? See, that's a tremendous statement. We're crowned with glory and honor. It's what makes sin so heinous that we who are crowned with glory and honor would rebel against the one who crowned us with glory and honor. It's what makes evangelism so necessary. Right? These aren't just stupid sinners going into their own direction, going to their own destruction. But these are image bearers of God, crowned with glory and honor, in desperate need of the gospel. And yet, he continues on, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and he gives a whole litany of things that man controls. And we cannot overdo how shocking this is, that man is in charge of all this. You know, I read that a gorilla, a full male adult silverback gorilla, can, the average one can lift over 10 times his body weight. There have been reports of gorillas lifting 27 times their body weight. I was in my, if one website I was reading about gorillas, I appreciated this line, it said, of all the animals to get into a, 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 a battle of fisticuffs with, right, gorillas are just about the worst, right? There's not a worse one you can choose, and if you lived through that experience, it's only because the gorilla wanted you to live. Right, so when I read about that, when I read about that gorilla, you know, if I want to spread my kingdom, if I want to spread my glory, I'm getting the gorilla. Forget you guys, I'm sorry, but the gorilla sounds pretty awesome, right? And yet here is God choosing us, choosing man to be his stewards. And yet as you know, many of you may know, and if you're if you know the biblical storyline, you know that this portrait of man is not the full picture. See, just six psalms later, David will declare that there is none who does righteous. Everyone has failed, as Paul will pick that up later on in Romans 3. And Psalm 57, we see that there's a certain lack of glory here on earth. We as image bearers, reflectors of God's glory, have failed in our God-given task. And as we stand back from this portrait given in Psalm 8, as we stand back from this psalm, we, we realize it's not really a painting at all. It's not a, a, a sheer one-dimensional look of who man is, but rather it's more like a perspective piece. Right? Perhaps you've seen these where it's an assortment of wires or shapes or something kind of floating in 3D space, 
And it's not until you get into one particular position that everything comes into line, right? Everything starts making sense. Right? And it's not until the true Son of Man comes, the true full image of God comes, that all of this starts coalescing, right? And the, when, the, when the, the New Testament writers look back at this psalm, for all its talk about man, for all its talk about man's dominion over the earth, they see one person in view. They see one person. And that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Right? And there are many commentators who want to resist this notion, want to resist that we're just trying to read something into this text. But as you read this psalm, who else could possibly fulfill this psalm? Who could fulfill the descriptors given in this passage? Christ is, as John 1.14 will tell us, the one who is full of the glory of God. He is God's glory present with us in a way never before seen. When Christ comes to this earth, his glory is on the earth. And that foolishness that was hinted at in the cries of babies and the praises of infants, well, Paul will come into clear focus and say that foolishness was paramount at the cross. When the most wicked, most foolish way of clearing the innocent was undertaken by the Son of God. See, it is in Christ that we see everything being subjected, not just to God, not just to man, but everything subjected to the God-man. And the man who was supposed to have dominion over this earth had failed in his duties. And then Christ, the one who was fully God and fully man, came to set those things right. And yet, if we're being honest with ourselves, it doesn't always feel like that. Right? We, we know in our heads that all things are subjected to Christ. I mean, he's God after all. Everything must be subjected to him. But there's a way in which everything seems off. Still seems a little not the way it's supposed to. In fact, that seems to be the logic of Paul's use of this psalm in 1 Corinthians 15 and even Hebrews 2 as well. Hebrews 2, 8 will say, after quoting this psalm about all things being put into subjection under his feet, we'll, see, we'll say, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, as he is going on about the importance of the resurrection, will say, quoting this passage, but there's still one more enemy to be defeated. Death. There's still one more. And so there's often this case where this foolishness continues for us. Right? All things have been brought unto, under Christ's feet, but it seems so often that that's not the case. 
And yet it takes eyes of faith to see Christ crowned with glory and honor. See, this is both a message of hope and encouragement for us as his people. So often we see death reigning in this earth. We see enemies having their way with the people of God. Seems everyone but Christians are welcome in this 2021 year. But more than that, more than on a global or national scale, right, it often feels in your own life that nothing is subject to Christ, right? It often feels that you're on your own, that all the Bible reading, all the prayers, all the times you go to church, is it, any, is it really doing any good? Is it doing anything at all? You can often feel foolish thinking that this is where your hope lies. Or what about trying to share the gospel with somebody? Is there anything more foolish than going up to somebody and telling them that the way they see the world is wrong? In fact, even in this year, it seems to be a Christian is utter foolishness. And yet we have a greater hope. There will be a time when all things are subjected to Christ, when all things are made manifest. That is where our hope lies. But this psalm also gives us a great deal of encouragement. Right? Who are we that we should ever be placed in the positions that we are? Right? When you consider the responsibilities that you are given as a father, as a husband, as a steward of the things God has given you, who are you to undergo such tasks? Right? Who am I that I should have my wife and be called to shepherd her? I'm sure the kids would agree, but who am I to lead this youth group, right? I mean, I am a stupid, ignorant, egotistical man, and yet God has called me here at this church. And he's called you into every moment of your lives to live faithfully, no matter how foolish it seems, no matter how insignificant it may feel in the moment. Those are the things that he uses, those foolish moments, those praises of infants and babies to bring his glory here on earth. See, Augustine ends his city of God by turning his reader to gaze at that day when all things will be made right when we will finally see God face to face, when all those moments of time and history, all the ups and downs of life finally culminate on this point of us dwelling with God, of us knowing in full, when finally God's glory will be spread over all the earth, and there we will see finally, fully, face to face, the one who has been crowned with glory and honor. There we will receive our final crowns of glory and honor, only to cast them back down again at his feet. There, the foolishness of God will be shown to be wiser than men, 
and all of the new heavens and the new earth will resound with that cry, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would cast our gaze, Father, to that final day when things will be made right, when our hearts will be made new, Lord, and we will see you face to face. Christ, we pray you who are crowned with glory and honor would continue to encourage us. Father, I pray that my words would be an encouragement to your people, Lord, that it would carry them through the week, that they might live faithfully, humbly, Father, submitting to all that you would have for them. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen.